In January 1980, the New England Journal of Medicine published a short five-sentence letter to the editor from a drug surveillance program in Boston. Narcotic painkillers were beginning to hit the market, and the researchers who had sent the letter had been testing how safe or addictive they were. Out of the 11,882 case files they looked at, the writers reported, quote, there were only four cases of reasonably well-documented addiction in patients who had no history of addiction, unquote. In the cases where patients did develop an addiction, they had been prescribed meperidine, percodan, or hydromorphone, potent opioids. The letter was cited over 600 times by biomedical researchers and treated as gospel, even when the letter was missing a vital part of the story. Only four cases of addiction were reported in the research, but what the letter did not specify was the fact that patients took the opioids under extremely careful medical supervision. The letter had ignited a movement that liberalized opioid use. This podcast attempts to unpack and examine the enigmatic, widespread, and complex nature of today's epidemic. You'll hear from a father who lost his son to opioid addiction. He was a very bright kid, very creative, very good baseball pitcher, didn't have an enemy in the world. We talked to a Harvard University psychobiologist who was on the team that created recommendations for the Trump White House. This is a brain disease that is 100% preventable. And we talked to some key players who have embarked on grassroots solutions to combat this nationwide epidemic. We went from, let's say, 20 overdoses a month to maybe 75, 80 overdoses a month. And it was like, you know, a, a switch went off. Oh, something's going on here. One mother looked at me and she said, and it doesn't just affect you while they're using, it affects you when they're gone for the rest of your life. We look at what policy solutions have been tried and what we're missing. I'm Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is the American Opioid Epidemic Podcast miniseries. Deaths from opioid overdoses have more than quadrupled since 1999. Some of the most severe devastation has been right here in Kentucky, and paramedics who used to go days without a single overdose are now lucky if they go just a few hours. In June 2017, our former research assistant Lily Dottilo and I made a brief visit to Eastern Kentucky to listen and learn about the opioid epidemic there. While my program primarily focuses on global health issues, the news of deaths caused by opioids in places like Kentucky was shocking, devastating, and puzzling. Kentucky is one of the top 10 states with the highest opioid-related overdose deaths, where there were 23.6 reported deaths per 100,000 people. That's nearly double the national rate. Opioid misuse, abuse, and death are particularly dire in the eastern Appalachian region of Kentucky, where several counties have death rates three times the national average. Why were opioids hitting this state with such vengeance? Why did this epidemic exist at all in this country? What we found is that the opioid epidemic is unlike any other health emergency America has experienced. It's a prolonged crisis that has been two decades in the making, rooted in modern medicine. 
It's been in part fueled by the overuse, misuse, and abuse of prescription opioids propelled by clinical and industrial practices. But not all is doom and gloom. Considerable progress is underway. Community and county-based initiatives have stepped up in their advocacy, education, monitoring, and treatment programs to produce change. Local law enforcement offices have instituted important changes in policing and have adopted using naloxone, a powerful overdose reversal medication. But there are gaps. While some say that the opioid crisis has quote-unquote peaked, Kentucky is still far from bending the curve and from controlling the epidemic. That is still a reality a year after our initial visit and it remains a reality for much of the rest of the nation. This mini-series features voices from Kentucky and some of the states with the highest opioid deaths in the country. It looks at how we got here, where we are, and what's being done to combat this persistent epidemic. Our story begins in the years following that fateful letter in the New England Journal of Medicine. Around the same time that researchers were studying Percodan and other opiates in the 1990s, a drug called OxyContin came onto the scene. It combined the opium derivative oxycodone with a time-release ingredient, making it the only opiate that promised multiple hours of pain relief. A pharmaceutical company based in Connecticut, Purdue Pharma, created OxyContin and began to market it aggressively. There's no question that our best, strongest pain medicines are the opioids but these are the same drugs that have a reputation for causing addiction and other terrible things. They don't wear out, they go on working, they do not have serious medical side effects. And so these drugs, which I repeat, are our best, strongest pain medications, should be used much more than they are for patients in pain. Between 1996 and 2001, Purdue Pharma conducted more than 40 speaker training conferences at resorts in places like Florida, Arizona, and California. According to a 2002 testimony from a Purdue Pharma lawyer, the company spent some $200 million towards these efforts. Around 5,000 physicians, pharmacists, and nurses attended these conferences on Purdue Pharma's dime. Dr. Bertha Madras is a professor of psychobiology at the Harvard Medical School and the director of the Laboratory of Addiction Neurobiology at McLean Hospital in Massachusetts. She's an expert on the opioid crisis and was appointed to the Trump administration's opioid task force last year. She's done extensive research on the opioid crisis and says that speaking tours weren't the only avenue that Purdue Pharma pursued. They also gave donations to the Federation of State Medical Board, the Joint Commission that accredits healthcare organizations, many organizations that are involved in essentially shepherding the practice of medicine and guarding it were given donations by the pharmaceutical industry. And the claims were made that the drugs are safe and effective for long-term pain. In 1998, Purdue Pharma circulated a video featuring patients who claimed to have gotten their lives back after using OxyContin. 
I got my life back. Now, now I can enjoy every day that I live. I can really enjoy myself. Since I've been on this new pain medication, I have not missed one day of work, and my boss really appreciates that. Lauren is there every day. I'm able to be a productive person again, which is really great. The medical community took notice. Soon, pain would be declared the fifth vital sign. Spurred by an editorial by the president of the American Pain Society, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation funded a joint commission to develop pain standards in 1997. Numeric pain scales were administered to patients, and a patient had to pass a certain pain score to be discharged from the hospital. Bertha Madras describes it this way. The end result of this was that physicians were being judged on whether or not they were prescribing enough opioids, whether or not they were paying attention to pain patients or to patients that complained of pain. And in some cases, both hospitals and physicians were judged on patient satisfaction scores. So it was the combination of aggressive marketing campaigns and an industry fixation on pain that gave rise to a new culture of liberalized opioid distribution. Dr. Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General in the Obama administration, described the rise of this culture at an event at CSIS in February 2017. We in part got here on a path that was paved with good intentions. So about 20 to 30 years ago, uh, doctors and nurses were urged to be more aggressive about treating pain. Uh, they were told that they were under treating pain uh, and allowing patients to suffer while they had the means to address that, that that wasn't right. You know, any clinician uh, who goes into the healing professions goes in because they want to relieve suffering. And so clinicians responded uh, to that call to action and said, absolutely, then let's get on it. Let's be more aggressive about treating pain. What happened after that was a vast increase in opioid prescribing. Vast. That's Dr. Madras again. 90 Percocets were given for a tooth extraction by dentists. People were sent home with a month's supply of opioids for sprained ankles from the emergency department. There was just a nation awash with prescription opioids. With the saturation of opioids came misuse and diversion. Dr. Madras acknowledges that there are some patients who have no alternative but to rely on opioids. But there were many who weren't in that camp who suddenly had access to more opioids than they truly needed. Many of them went unused. Many of them were diverted and given to friends and family free. Some were stolen from medicine cabinets. Some were sold on the streets. And people bought them eagerly because they were pristine form of opioids. In 1991, about 76 million opioid prescriptions were given out. But by 2013, the number had tripled to 207 million. President Trump has given a new commission 90 days to come up with ideas to address the deadliest drug crisis in American history. Today, the United States leads the world in opioid prescribing. American doctors prescribe five times more opioids than 29 other countries. In 2015, an estimated 2 million Americans suffered from substance use disorders related to prescription opioids. Many become addicted to the opioids that were prescribed to them. 
In 2012, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel tracked and followed up with patients from the 1998 Purdue Pharma promotional video. Lauren, who appeared in the original promo, beaming because she no longer had to miss work, appears on screen looking significantly older and thinner. She says she became increasingly addicted to OxyContin and was driven by this addiction. I lost my job and I lost my insurance. So it got to the point where I couldn't afford it and I didn't buy it one time and that was the beginning of the end for me. She goes on to say that the withdrawal symptoms were unbearable. That time that I went without it was uh, probably the most unbelievable, excruciating, horrible time of my life. I, I'd probably kill myself OD taking this medicine. I would never take another Oxycontin. There's, you couldn't get me to take another Oxycontin, never again. Some patients were less lucky. Johnny, from the original promo video, became so addicted that the opioids had impacted his ability to stay awake. His wife recalls the day that Johnny flipped his truck in North Carolina. He was killed instantly. Eyewitness behind him said that they thought maybe he'd got distracted, which I knew what was wrong with him. He fell asleep from that medicine. I knew what it was. The effectiveness of opioids cannot be overstated. It wasn't long before opioids reached beyond hospitals and pharmacies into the illicit market. Bertha Madras explains. Along with that came tampering of the pills, especially extended release ones, because these long-acting opioids could be crushed and dissolved in water and injected and deliver a very intense euphoria. The criminal drug trafficking industry seized on the potency of opioids as a potential market opportunity. Heroin proliferated in the 1970s into the 90s and still has enormous staying power today. But the synthetic painkiller that's raising the drug overdose death rates dramatically is a drug called fentanyl. Former Assistant Secretary of the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement at the Department of State, Ambassador William Brownfield, talked about the rise of fentanyl when he was here at CSIS last year. He warned audiences that today's drugs are more lethal than anything on the market during the cocaine crisis of the 1980s. First, we have an opioid crisis, it is then turned into a heroin crisis, and today we have heroin on steroids, fentanyl, a product which is estimated to be somewhere between 10 and 50 times as potent and therefore as dangerous uh, as the most common uh, opiate that is used illegally or illicitly around the world that would be morphine. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Drug overdose deaths surpassed 72,000 in 2017. Put into stark terms, that's about 200 drug overdose deaths per day, or one every eight minutes. How then did such an illegal substance become so commonplace in America? Jack Riley, while deputy administrator of the Drug and Enforcement Agency, describes to ABC's Nightline in a 2017 interview that there are two major sources of fentanyl coming into the United States, Mexican cartels and Chinese producers. What you're seeing is very sophisticated criminal organizations. They understand the addiction issue is present here, and they're doing everything they can to control the market. 
A common refrain among many local law enforcement officers from around the country is that there aren't enough first responders to address the overwhelming overdose incidents. In an MSNBC documentary, a deputy sheriff in Ohio explains why he and other law enforcement officers are responding to overdose calls. Why is a sheriff's deputy that's supposed to be fighting crime driving around with a, with a heroin antidote? Uh, we don't have enough EMS units uh, for the overdoses. When we first started doing this, it was one every two weeks, and then it gradually worked its way into one every week, and now we're into uh, three, four, five a day. With the confluence of pharmaceutical marketing, increased demand for pain treatment, and proliferation into the black market, we find ourselves confronting the deep roots of the American opioid crisis. Next time on the podcast, you'll hear from a family who lost a son to fentanyl. It started with uh, alcohol and marijuana, proceeded into benzodiazepines, Xanax, and we did not know. We'll also look at what has been done on the national and local levels to combat this crisis. This is the American Opioids Epidemic Podcast miniseries. <laughs>